Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. What up, everyone? This is Alex, CEO and founder of Marspace. And in this episode, we'll be talking to Pera Vallés, uh, be the CEO of Exotica, a travel startup from Barcelona, one of the companies raising uh, the most amount of capital in the last years in a pretty exciting market. But unfortunately, they got hit hard by the pandemic in 2020. We'll be talking about this. We'll be talking about the travel tech sector. We'll be talking about leadership in rough times. Pera is a seasoned entrepreneur and leader. He's been... He's been suffering and undergoing several uh, global crises since the year early 2000s when the, the, the dot-com bubble burst. Then we've had other economic crises and most recently the, the global pandemic, right? So in this episode, we'll be talking about leadership, how to communicate to the teams, how to steer the 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 ship in the, these rough times and in these uh, trying situations, how to who takes the decisions and what's the right moment to communicate them. And especially we will open up towards the end of the episode where uh, Peta opens up about his transformation from being more, more, much more rigid leader towards a much more empathic and um, emotional and open and fragile leader right now when he is uh, commanding Exotica. I think this is a very interesting episode, especially if you saw our interview with Peta Valles in Star Prime in 2016, if I remember correctly, March 2016. You want to see a contrast of a great leader, one of the greatest leaders and investors and entrepreneurs in Barcelona, Mr. Pere Valles. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Here it starts. Welcome, everybody, to Life on Mars. We are here with uh, Pere Valles, CEO at Exotica. How are you, Pere? How are you doing today? Welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Uh, a pleasure to be here with you. Let's give some context to the audience because uh, we are very familiar with Exotica. We've been following you for a while now. I remember when you joined them in 2018. Team, you told me in uh, four years from now, uh, if I remember correctly. But um, what's Exotica for the for the audience? Because I think it's going to be very relevant for our audience today. So Exotica is a, a travel tech startup that is trying to digitize uh, one of the last segments of the travel industry that is still offline, that is still in the hands of the of the traditional travel agencies, uh, which is the, the 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 segment that addresses the the long haul tour packages. Uh, these are the the type of trips that uh, have an international flight. Uh, once you reach the destination, there is an itinerary that requires additional flights, uh, land transportation, uh, multiple hotels, activities, excursions, etc. So it's probably the most uh, complex travel product. And, and because of this complexity, uh, as I said, it's still uh, being uh, sold by the traditional travel agencies, the, the offline travel agencies. And what we want to do at Exotica is, is to change this and bring this uh, segment of the travel industry online, as it has happened with uh, flights and hotels. Uh, and we're doing this with a, with a value proposition that is based on two big pillars. One is um, providing uh, convenience uh, to the customer in the purchasing processes, in the process, purchasing process, basically allowing them to do this purchasing process online. And secondly, uh, a very aggressive um, value proposition in terms of price. 
which I understand it has been a rough year, 2020, right? Before we go into that, so what's the part of that technology is solving in this in this process, right? Because you're saying that you're digitizing some of the processes that were they were traditionally owned by the travel uh, travel agencies. But what what is technology solving in this part? Is it uh, like a better scheduling? Is it a better I don't know, like a, a better pricing for the end user? What what is your product solving uh, with technology? Basically, the, the the key here with this type of product is you have uh, about between 20 and 30 different components. So you have uh, multiple flights, you have multiple hotels, you have multiple activities. So the key is uh, being able to have a technology that uh, has an interconnection with uh, the provider of each one of these components of the package and that can provide uh, real-time pricing and real-time availability and can orchestrate this type of complex trips uh, on the flight uh, in, in, a, in a dynamic way as the customer does the search in, in your website. So you need basically like a back office platform that has the interconnection with the different providers and allows, allows to build on the fly these packages as the customer makes the selection and offers the customer real-time pricing and real-time availability. When, when you go to a traditional travel agency and you want to buy this type of, of trip, uh, you're not going to get immediate pricing. They will have to uh, contact the different suppliers and get back to you in a few days. What we do is we allow to do it online and on a real-time basis. That's, that's part of what we solve. And the second part that we solve is usually a travel agency it goes through many layers of intermediation. They they, they buy they, they don't buy directly from, from the hotel. They buy from an international tour operator that uh, buys uh, from a local travel agency in the destination that is the one that really buys from the different providers of the different components. What we do is we bypass all these layers of intermediation and through these interconnections that we have directly with the provider of each component of the package, we're able to bring down uh, significantly the, the cost. Let's talk a little bit more about the main topic of this episode because what we wanted to cover here today is leadership through crisis, right? And and you've you've been leading companies for quite a while now. You've got a lot of accumulated experience at sea level in some really big um, uh, companies. Um, not only you were a CFO at a Nasdaq company back in the 2000s crisis, then you had been also for many, many years, the, the CEO and chairman of um, Cytel, a Barcelona-based startup, and now at Exotica, right? Seems like every few years we've got a big crisis and you've been at the forefront and just battling in the trenches, right? For us, for instance, it's our first crisis this one, the first crisis we experienced as business owners, right? So maybe there's other people out there who experienced the first, the first crisis as business owners as well, right? So uh, let's say the first time you're faced in a leadership position with a crisis like this, what are your immediate thoughts and how do you usually react to this? Like, do you, how, like, let's start with communications, for instance. When do you communicate there's a crisis to the team? So I, as you said, I, I've, I've gone through uh, multiple crises, you know. Uh, uh, my first one was uh, in, in the year 2000 when the dot-com yeah. bubble uh, busted. Uh, I was at the time the CFO of a NASDAQ listed company. I was only 29 years old. I didn't have a lot of experience. I had lived through the through the crazy 90s, you know, where there was a, a huge boom. And, and yeah. when you don't have the, the experience span of having gone through a crisis before, uh, you think that things will always, you know, uh, continue the same, you know. So the, the the first, I think, the first reaction when you face a crisis, especially when it's the first time, is 
is shocked, you know, uh, because you don't really know uh, what is happening. Uh, it's something that you haven't experienced before. And the second is probably denial, you know. Uh, you think that uh, this is temporary, uh, the market uh, has overreacted, things will go back to normal, and therefore uh, there is no need to rush and to do anything uh, too dramatic, you know, because you, you think it's a, it's a temporary thing. With time uh, and uh, through experience, when you go through uh, several crises, then you start learning that um, basically uh, from time to time uh, there are going to be crises, you know. And, and I think in the... In the world that we live in, uh, where things happen more quickly than before, uh, it is likely that we're going to go through more crises more often than than, than, than in previous in previous times. You know, so uh, in the case of this last crisis, for example, um, it was it was a shock as well. Eh? Uh, even though I had already gone through through different ones, it was a shock because uh, Exotica was doing really well. It was a company that had grown from two million euros in sales in 2015 to almost 50 million in 2019. We had started 2020 in a in a fantastic way, you know. January and February had been great months, and this uh, Chinese uh, virus, you know, that we we call it at the time, uh, that it seemed to be a, a Chinese problem, you know, it only affected one of the 50 destinations that we have, which China is a big destination for us, but it didn't it didn't seem like a big problem. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, we started hearing about cases in Italy. And we found out that this was a, a global pandemic, and, and things happened really, really very quickly. We went from uh, selling five million euros uh, per month to selling like uh, hundred thousand euros in in the first oh, two weeks of, of April, you know, and, and that happened in a forty-five day uh, time span. So it was, I would say, it's, it's always shock. Uh, obviously, with with experience, you you start learning that um, that but basically that this thing happened, uh, and then. The key thing is is to to be able to adjust uh, quickly, you know, uh, mentally and and also as a company, you in terms of the of the resources of the company, you have to to adjust very quickly. So when's the right moment to start communicating to the team? Like not too early, but also not too late. How do you calibrate this? Well, in the case of of this last crisis, uh, it was very obvious, you know, because it was super visible. Everybody knew it. Yeah, everybody knew. It, you know, it was in the news. Uh, everybody saw. The big drop that we had in sales, which was, as I said, super sudden uh, and super dramatic. Uh, so there was not really a big need of communicating, hey, we have a problem. It was more, uh, what are we going to do about it? You know, um, the first instinct when you have a crisis like this is 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 a, is a conservative instinct that we have as as animals. You know, which is is a defensive instinct. You know, of uh, let's cut everything we can. You know, let's. Uh, Almost go into semi-hibernation and, and, and wait until the storm uh, is over. You know, basically you, you cut your marketing budget. You know, we went from spending one million euros per month in marketing to spending um, twenty-five thousand euros. Uh, we basically cut everything that was discretionary, and then we did uh, a temporary suspension of employment. We did an airtime. You know, that was our first reaction. You know, which is mm -hmm. uh, a fight for survival. You know, uh, we had raised uh, some cash the year, the, the the previous year, with some financing. So we. We were relatively well funded, but since we didn't know uh, for how long it would take, uh, we our first reaction was: listen, let's let's make sure that we have enough runway, so that under under the most pessimistic scenario, we have enough time to to recover. But then uh, after, and so we we had to communicate this to the people. We had to say, listen, uh, this is a situation. Uh, we're in the travel industry. Uh, this is a pandemic that uh, affects travel in a big way, and and honestly, everybody understood because it was not. A company-specific crisis. It was a, a global crisis that had a big impact on the travel industry. And then, uh, after this first defensive, conservative reaction, 
we start thinking and we say, listen, uh, we think that we are capable of reactivating sales even under the worst uh, possible conditions uh, uh, if we come up with creative and aggressive measures. And therefore, uh, it doesn't make sense to be in hibernation. It makes more sense to try to take advantage of some of the opportunities that uh, will come up with these prices. And, and we basically got out of this hibernation mode very quickly, in like 30 days. Uh, we put in place wow. some measures and we were able to reactivate sales and, and basically re uh, recover. Because you knew that all hope was lost, and but you didn't want to play like the others, perhaps, right? You said, okay, uh, we're not going to sell anyways, so we might as well want to try new experiments, right? What were like, what kind of experiments did you try there? Because I think you, you mentioned a couple before our call, so maybe let's share yeah. with the others. I mean, at the end, we we tried to address the, the the main concerns of the people, no? And the main concerns were, were the main one was the uncertainty. People didn't know whether they would be able to travel, when they would be able to travel, whether it would be safe, whether they would have the money when for when they wanted to travel. Uh, so there was a lot of uncertainty. So the way to remove the uncertainty was to come up with the most aggressive uh, cancellation policy in the in the space. You know, we we had a a free cancellation policy where we would give you your, your cash back uh, if you call and wanted to cancel, uh, no questions asked or for any reason. And, and that basically removes a lot of the, of the uncertainty. You know, that, that was a, I think that was a big move. It's a move that has a lot of risk for, for the company, but uh, for the customer, obviously, it has some, some very obvious benefits and some incentives to, to purchase now. Then, obviously, uh, If you have a free cancellation policy, but you the deals that you're getting are the same deals that you're seeing before the crisis, you don't really have an incentive to buy, you know. So you need to mm -hmm. make sure that what you offer in terms of product is the best that has ever been seen, you know. Uh, so we came up with prices for our top destinations that were prices uh, never seen before, you know. And, and the way we did it is by going to our partners in the different destinations and telling our partners, listen, uh, we're one of the few companies that is going to still be active in the market, that is going to continue investing in marketing, and we're going to promote your destination. But in order to promote your destination, what we need is that you give us really the best prices that you have and prices that have never seen before. And with that, we were able to come up with uh, some super amazing offers. And finally, the third thing that we did is we realized that people were not going to travel uh, in the summer of 2020, you know, because... Uh, We knew that uh, by then the, the, the situation would not be under control. So uh, selling trips uh, for the summer of 2020 with a pre-cancellation policy uh, did not make out of sense because all of them would be would be canceled. So we extended what, 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 what we call the, the travel window, so which basically the period uh, in which you can travel until uh, the end of 2022. So we, and, and in order to do that, uh, we had to estimate the, the, the prices for the flights because airlines only provide prices for the next 11 months. So... The fact that we extended the travel window for over two years means that we had to come up with prices for, for flights that we don't know and that don't, don't exist yet. And, and we had to basically develop very quickly an algorithm to predict those flights. We will know if the algorithm was right or not in, in 2022, I guess. Oh, wow. And, and with that, with these three measures, basically with uh, the possibility of traveling until or booking uh, trips until the end of 2022, Uh, with prices never seen before and with the possibility of always canceling uh, those trips, no questions asked, we really uh, were able to reactivate the demand. And in some markets, like the U.S. markets, like the U.S. market, we were able to even grow uh, from 2019. 
You're also taking a lot of financial risk here, right? Uh, on the one hand, because you, even though you are selling now, you're invoicing people now, you're charging people now, you're getting the, the cash flow now, but you might not spend it until the future, right? And therefore, you're able to pay or like you know get money for your value, and then keep it until that happens. That might be canceled as well, right? Or the price might be higher than expected just because you're predicting the, these flights, right? How do you, I mean, how do you even this out? Is this a calibrated risk? I assume yes, but uh, in doing so, do you think like, you know, this risk assessment, is it really worth it? And how much competitive advantage is it giving you over the competition? You have to take, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's definitely, as you said, the Alex is taking, you have to take a risk, you know, but at the end, the, the, the risk of not doing anything, you know, mm -hmm. and, and waiting uh, for a year, uh, it's also a big risk uh, because at the end, Correct, uh, yeah. that have been in hibernation for, for a year now. And, and I don't know if they will ever wake up, you know, from hibernation because when the hibernation is so long, you know, you start losing people, you lose uh, customers, yeah. you lose the, the market feel, you lose uh, the deals that you have negotiated with your partners. So uh, it has a risk, but it, it, we, we took a risk. We took a risk. Um, we took, I think, two big risks. One is um, the cancellation risk. Uh, and here, uh, what we have seen, and we didn't know at the time, we, we made some assumptions, but we didn't know. But what we have seen is that people are so eager to really travel that when they cancel because uh, they cannot travel yet, we we in, there's a big percentage of them, actually most of them, that rebook, basically, that change the date, you know? So okay. instead of asking for the money back, which they are entitled to, they were convincing them to, listen, uh, you cannot travel now in, 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 in March, you know, 2021, why don't you postpone it until May and maybe the things will be will, will be better, you know? And, and customers are, are, are buying into it because they are eager to travel and they know that the deals that they have in terms of price uh, quality are, are very good, you know? Um, so, so that, 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 that's working quite well. We also created uh, something that we call the, the wallet, uh, where basically if you are uh, a customer, um, and, and you want to cancel because, because you cannot travel or you don't want to travel uh, on a certain date, you can ask for your money back and we'll give you your money back. But if you deposit the money in a wallet with us, we do a top up of 5% that you can use, uh, against, uh, any future travel that you want to book with us. And that has also worked quite well, you know? So we, what we did uh, in the case of cancellations, we put some preventive measures, you know, to, to manage uh, that risk. And in the case of, of the airlines, in the case of the airlines, uh, we're taking a risk. We're taking a risk definitely because we're predicting flights. But at the end, the analysis that we did is if you look historically uh, uh, what is happening with uh, airline fares, uh, uh, they said, this deflation, you know, they tend to go down, you know, uh, they, they, they don't go up. You know, if you look at how much yep, it was correct. in New York uh, 10 years ago, it was it was more expensive than now. And if you look at 20 years ago, it was even more expensive, you know. So there is deflation, no, in the industry. And then with the crisis, there is also uh, overcapacity and there's going to be overcapacity for a while, you know. So if we had to guess now what is going to happen with uh, flight prices in 2022, I would guess that they will go down. I don't. I wouldn't guess that they would go up. And what we did is we we did a, a conservative estimate on, on on what those prices will be. But again, we will find out whether we're right or not uh, when we're in 2022. Let's circle back to crisis. Uh, so, uh, did you create any sort of crisis committee inside the company to to be the ones that are deciding what 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 uh, what people were part of this committee? It was like the C levels only. It was also like HR who were involved in this committee. 
Well, it was honestly, it was everybody, you know, it was uh, because it was so, so in this case, in the practical case, it was everybody. It was obviously the, the, the C level of the company, you no, know, is, is the one that took the lead. I mean, I, my personal style is I like to, I like to involve um, the executive team, you know, because uh, honestly, uh, it's, it's a way of sharing also the burden, you know, if, uh, there, are, there are some CEOs yeah. that prefer to do everything themselves and keep everything to themselves. And, and honestly, I don't think, I don't think it's good for the company and I don't think it's healthy for the CEO either, you know, so I, I okay. like to share the burden. So here uh, we collectively as an executive team um, made the decisions, you know, uh, made the decisions first to, 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 to reduce the cost. Then we made the decisions. Listen, we, I, we feel that we're capable of going back to the market and come up with a value proposition that is attractive enough to reactivate sales and, and people bought into that. And, and then we, we did brainstorming to come up with the ideas of what was required to, to do this, so it was it was a collective a collective uh, effort, uh, and I think as I said, eh, I think it's 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 good for the company because you you open uh, to to new experiences and new viewpoints, and it's good also for the for the own CEO because you you don't carry all the burden, you know, which is as I said, is not healthy. That's a good point. Actually, you know, in our company, we meet. I meet with my two partners every week to sort of decide, take strategic decisions, and plan ahead and and make movements. But I remember when March came and we were forced into the, the that harsh lockdown here in Barcelona. We were meeting every day, sometimes several times a day, just because informations were coming from here and there. There was a lot of uncertainty. The government said it's going to be a matter of two, three weeks, and uh, you know, you know, you, you cannot trust them very much. And then you were seeing that the, the the virus is spreading to other countries, and therefore other countries were also developing this, and they were attacking some of our uh, you know bigger markets like the U.S. perhaps, and, and things like that. So we went from meeting once per week and once per day. How often were you meeting with these people, and how much time did it take in percentage of you as a CEO? I, would say, I mean, uh, in the weeks of the crisis, it was, uh, I would say it was 80% of our time was uh, thinking uh, about alternative solutions. Uh, we spent a lot of time also working on, on cash scenarios, you know, at the end, mm -hmm. uh, very important to know uh, what is the runway that you have under different scenarios uh, in terms of the evolution of the coronavirus, the duration, and also the, the different levers that you can activate in order to, to increase that um, that that time span, you know. Uh, so we, I remember we spent a lot of time modeling, uh, basically what what could happen. Uh, and as you know, as you as you said, you know, it's there was a lot of uncertainty. You know, we knew uh, what was going to happen, uh, how long it would last, what would be the impact. So we had, uh, I don't know, we worked with uh, a lot of the scenarios, and at the end we, we we narrowed it down to three. And and also we involved, we, I have to say, we involved the, the board of directors at the end. Uh, Right. Uh, anything that we did, uh, it was it was presented to them uh, as, a, as a proposal from the executive uh, team, uh, and it was approved by the board of directors. And I have to say that uh, they were very supportive. And, and I'm, I have had many investors in the past, and and usually when investors, um, when things go well, uh, all investors behave very similarly. And it's really when when things get tough, you know that. Uh, that, that you really see, no, uh, how how investors are, no, and 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 I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, they were super supportive, not only with words, which they were, and, and advice, but also with with facts and with money, you know, because uh, we we did an extension of our series B round that we had closed in in 2019. We did that in July of 2020, so in the middle of the, wow. of the crisis, yeah. even though the company didn't really need it, you know, the company still had uh, quite a bit of funding, but we felt that. Having some extra funding would give us comfort to to continue investing, you know, and and they and they did that. So 
um, having supportive investors through crisis is also uh, super important, super important. How are you communicating with with people? Who was doing the communications? Uh, with what regularity? Uh, were you? Because one of the important things here is that you were not in the office anymore. It's not like you could call everybody into a, you know a conference room and just uh, explain them the situation. They were at home, right? So how how did you yeah. turn the company around to communicate this uh, to everybody at the right time? One of the things I think that, that one of the positive outcomes out of uh, this whole uh, crisis uh, has been that I think we have uh, significantly increased and improved the communication with our people, you know, and, and, and okay, the, the company in general. I mean, for example, we we, we used to have, eh, we had a newsletter, you know, that uh, every two weeks the HR department would send to, to everybody and would give updates, you know, on what's going on in the in the company, uh, and in the industry, etc. But uh, one thing that we didn't do is communicating, like we are doing now, is communicating on a monthly basis the, the results of the companies to, to all the employees, you know. Uh, sometimes VC-backed companies are very reluctant to that because they don't want that yeah. information to filter out. Uh, and before the crisis, we we're not doing it, uh, to be honest. But uh, since we asked people uh, to make sacrifices, like uh, we put people in ERTE, we reduced salaries for certain people, we eliminated the, the company bonuses, Uh, since we are we're asking people uh, to do sacrifices, personal sacrifices in many cases, we felt that we had an extra obligation to be very transparent about what was going on with the business, you know, and, and, and I think one thing that I start doing uh, on a monthly basis and I'm still doing and I will, I plan to continue doing is every month, at the end of the month, I would send an email uh, explaining uh, the, the financial results of the company, you know, uh, with total transparency. So I think in, in that sense, people people appreciate that. You know, people, I think, appreciate being treated as adults, you know, uh, and even if the news are not good, that you are transparent and you tell them, listen, this is what's, what's going on. This is what we're going to do about it. Uh, we're going to try this. Uh, and then the next month, listen, this hasn't worked. We, we need to try something different. No, I think that that has been... Uh, one of the positive outcomes of this crisis that we've become more, much more transparent. And again, people have reacted very well eh? because uh, it was super harsh for a lot of the people. Um, I mean, to be inerte, nobody likes to be inerte or or to, to have a pay cut, nobody likes that, uh, no bonuses. Uh, because we had some people inerte, uh, other people had to do extra work or more work than, than they, usually, they, they usually had. Uh, but I think in general, people, I would say, In general, I'm saying in general, but I think it was almost unanimous. Everybody uh, reacted very well. Everybody understood that it was a very exceptional situation. Everybody understood that it was a, a life or death situation, especially at the beginning, you know. Um, and at the end, uh, as a team, we were able to overcome the, the crisis. One of the things that really resonates with what we were doing at Marspace, right? We have always had this policy of transparency in the company. So even though we had always been sharing our numbers with our employees on a regular basis, people were scared, right? And at the beginning of the crisis, they were like, oh, well, I am, I am worried about my job. And most of our developers were worried about the jobs just because in their environment, everybody was losing their jobs. Even though they knew that we're in a very stable financial situation and we we had signed big contracts at the beginning of the year everything was stable it's not because of the company wasn't stable it's because their surroundings and their family friends and significant others whatever they were losing their jobs that they were just in this fear right so i think that quite paradoxically even if the company was was stable i mean you you guys were not sharing this information before but we were so it was like irrespective of that people were feeling insecure just because they have never been in a, in this uh, situation or maybe it had been like 10 12 years right since 2008 we were not in a situation like this right so in, in this regard there's another 
think that you guys might have implemented here. I don't know if you were remote friendly or not, but how about remote work, right? Because people were forced overnight to go into full remote without proper training, without equipment, without support from the company, without devices even, without VPN accesses to their to to their offices and 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 you know uh, to their to their computers in the office. So, how was this transition for you? Like, were you prepared yeah. for this or how did you? No, and I think, uh, and Alex, and I think you, you've always been uh, remote, oh, no? Okay. And you were, yeah. you were a big, uh, a big proponent of remote. Uh, and uh, obviously I've been following you and I, I know, I know that you, you, and I was, honestly, I was very skeptical about remote eh? uh, uh, before the crisis. I, I was, I was a big believer of, of being in the office. I, I thought that, honestly, I thought that the, the productivity was not the same. And, and one of the, and I've been, I've been proven wrong, basically. I, I think one of the, the big lessons learned is that uh, I don't think productivity has gone down, on the contrary, uh, um, by, by being remote. Uh, and I don't think we will ever go back to, to the model that we had before. I mean, we did a, a small survey among uh, all the employees, uh, and we asked, basically, whether they wanted to, once once the, 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 the situation is is, is stable and, and 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 the coronavirus crisis is resolved, what what do they want? Do they want to go back to to, to what we had before? Uh, and I think it was like fifteen percent that that said uh, yes. And then uh, or the second option was, do you want to do full remote? Uh, and I think the answer was like um, 30-40%, and fifty percent of the people, the remaining people, wow. they wanted a hybrid system. You know where. Uh, you can you can meet with your teams uh, from time to time, you know, uh, um, but uh, you can primarily uh, work remote. And I think that's the that's a system we're going to go. And I think honestly, that's the system that most uh, tech startups will go. And whoever doesn't go to that system is going to have a, a problem recruiting and retaining talent because it's 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 good for the company. It's good, I think, for for the for the for the person uh, to, to because it gives you flexibility. And at the end. If you think about it, it's like treating employees as adults. You know, uh, they they know what they need to do. Uh, they can do it at their pace uh, when they when it's convenient for them. So you give them flexibility on that on that end, and they don't need to be here uh, to do it. You know, and, and so I think one of the big lessons learned uh, for me and, and I think for many maybe old school uh, people, no, uh, that uh, thought that being in the office was critical, blah blah, blah is that uh, things can be done very effectively and very efficiently in a remote environment. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been an evangelist. We've always been uh, suggesting that remote work is the way, is the future. But also, I think that remote shouldn't be adopted as a benefit just because everybody else is doing it, right? And we, even prior to the crisis, we had been seeing and advising some companies that they wanted to, to adopt remote just because everybody else was doing it and they were not hiring but I don't think that's the right reason because people will perceive it, right? You will not do it as a something that you want to do, but rather as, as something that you are forced to do. And maybe you don't have the right team. Maybe you don't have the right structure. You have the right leadership, right? So I don't know. It's not always that easy. And one of the things that also other companies have seen is that this huge increase in, in productivity, just because there's a phenomenon. I think there are studies that prove that it, it's not related to being remote. It's when people know they're being inspected or analyzed for a change, they tend to overperform, right? So if you, if you 
Yeah. So I think that's, you know, it's not always causation versus correlation, but I think we're talking a little bit about that. But how did you, like, I'm, I'm assuming that there were certain processes and policies that you had to change in terms of, you know, technology. Not everybody had a, like, you know, personal computer or work computer or, uh, or structures in the company that there were two or three weeks of huge instability, right? In which they were like some people still in the office while others were not in the office. How did you manage the transition? Was there like an, an involved also like a committee of person just of people just doing that or you know providing people with some training or best practices yeah, yeah i i know that there are other companies that have suffered with that uh, it mm. was it was done overnight and it was quite smooth oh, wow. yeah uh, probably the person that uh, was responsible for this which was our like uh, it manager here's me he would he would say that it was not that smooth or it was a bit <laughs> Honestly, I didn't feel it was it was super difficult. Everybody had a, a laptop, you know. Uh, that's what we use uh, at Exotica. We had the right tools, you know. Uh, uh, you know, uh, so it was it was it was. I would say it was quite uh, quite smooth, and it was done overnight, as as many companies had to do. So uh, we use Slack, we use Zoom, um, and it worked. It worked very well. It worked very well. How about the 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 personal? issues, right? One of the things we've seen with this crisis, the isolation, anxiety, imposter syndrome, stress, many, many other things, right? Or, or pressure just caused by bullying or employers forcing people to go to the office, even though it was not allowed, things like that, right? We've seen all sorts of, of problems here. Um, companies suffer, but people also suffer, right? A lot. And even though we, for instance, like even though we had been working remotely for the seven years of the company, I think everyone in the company has had some sort of mental issue, so to speak, to a bigger or or a smaller degree. And how do you deal with those in the in the company? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think honestly, I think after this, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be affected, no, by what we went through. Uh, I think uh, the anxiety, you know, of uh, the the the, work, the 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 concern, you know, about getting sick, the the, the isolation. I mean. There are people that uh, obviously can cope with this better because they they're more used to to, to to being alone. But there are people that are, are suffering. Honestly, in our case, uh, we've had the, we had some issues. We had some issues of people that uh, that have suffered, you know. And and, and, and uh, but as a company, uh, while you cannot meet with people, you know, because it's not safe. I mean, I'm not sure there is a lot you can do, you know, to to help these people. Um, mm -hmm. But there are people that that need the social contact, that live alone, and, and working at home and being alone all day uh, is 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 super tough, you know. And, and, and I, I'm I, myself, you know, I'm, I'm very, I, I like to be in the office, you know. I like to meet people. I like to 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 to, to be in contact with people. So I, I find it hard, you know. But there are other people that uh, take uh, this a uh, step further and, and and feel a very high level of anxiety, and and, and it really affects them. I think it's. It's, it's not so much the fact that they are working remotely, it's the fact that they are forced to uh, stay at home and work remotely, you know, that they don't have the possibility of... Correct. This is when we were in confinement, you know, uh, I think that was especially tough for, for a lot of people. I, I've seen it. I've seen it in my, in my, um, in my close uh, uh, ecosystem of people that, that I know. I've seen uh, some cases of people that have really suffered. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're forced to work from home, it's not really remote because you're not in control. It's kind of like if you're forced to work from a hospital just because, you know, you broke your legs or something, but you still want to work. That's not remote work. It's just, you know, it's being, it's adapting to the situation. Um, how about the, the another thing that I wanted to comment on, you know, in Ben Horowitz in the, the Hard Thing About Hard Things, uh, one of the greatest books I've ever re read about business, says there, there there's two modes in being a CTO, a CEO, right? The wartime mode and peacetime mode. And in the middle of crisis, you go with the wartime mode where like everything is like, you need to defy the status quo. You need to break all the rules, even the company culture perhaps, because you need to survive. In wartime, you know, and, and a big pandemic might be uh, the, the, the ideal scenario to go into wartime. You change your team, you change your ways, you change your attitude also as a CEO, you change your communications. What What is Peravalles in wartime mode like? It's uh, no, it's 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 really. I mean, when at the no, when you were explaining this, I I could totally relate eh, to 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 what you were saying. Uh, I think when you're in a situation where you are uh, you are facing maximum uncertainty and and it's almost a. Uh, I don't want to sound too dramatic, but for the company, it could be a, a therefore-life uh, type of situation, you know, and you're mm -hmm. against the wall. Uh, you go into into wartime mode, and, and basically you get super intense, you get super focused on uh, needs to be done in order to guarantee the survival of the company, and you put, uh, and, and it's hard to say this, eh? you put feelings uh, aside, you know, to do whatever it takes to, to guarantee uh, the survival of the company, because at the end, that's the, the number one objective. The problem with this is that it can be done, and and, and I, I can do it, but sustaining this over time uh, for a long period of time, it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult for the person, uh, for, for the own CEO, you know, because you, you can burn yourself, you know, because nobody likes to be in that type of super intense uh, stress mode. And it also uh, can burn the people around you, you know, so you need to have to, you, you need to be intense when you when, when it's necessary, but then as soon as possible, you need to switch to, to peacetime mode. Yeah, however, wartime mode is it's not like you know when it's going to end, especially with this one that we're facing right yes. now that, you know, as I mentioned, the government said it was going to be a matter of two, three weeks and it's going to be a year now when this podcast is out, right? How about you personally? Like, I, I don't know if it's a, um, adequate or not, but like, let, let's open, let's open up a bit. Um, uh, one of the things I did with, uh, with my team was to open up that I was just not going through a very good period in, I think it was after the summer in which I was feeling a little bit of anxiety. We hadn't been selling, even though the company didn't need new contracts, right? But I, I was not used to not selling for 10 months. Usually we sell a new contract every three or four months, right? And so I, I opened up, I sent a base camp message to all the employees saying like, maybe I'm not the right CEO. Maybe this happens. Maybe I should try something new. Let's talk about it. And um, the the answer were the answers were positive and super overwhelming, right? Uh, it was it was amazing to receive that kind of support. So thank you. But like, what what were the worst days at the office for you? Like not only in this crisis, maybe in previous crises as well. Honestly, in this crisis, because it was a it was a crisis that was kind of a global external that affected in a in a huge way the travel industry. So it was not a, a crisis that uh, somehow I caused because I made a mistake. You know, yeah. Um, so. I, I didn't feel I didn't feel as responsible as other crises that I have lived, where I felt that I could have done things better to avoid the crisis. You know, for example, uh, my my last couple of years at Cytel were really tough. You know, and and I was in 
in crisis mode, you know, during, during 20 years, which really burned me out. And I mm. felt that I was partly responsible for what okay. the company was facing, you know. And, and then is when you start doubting yourself and, and you start questioning whether you made the right calls and, and whether you, you made a problem bigger than, than what it was, you know, whether the decisions you were making are the right decisions. So when I think there is a difference, or, or at least for me, when, when the crisis is like the burst of the dot-com bubble, you know, and you're a Nasdaq-listed company, okay, you know, there's nothing you can do, you know, it affects everybody and you... You just try to do the, the better you can. Or when the crisis is a coronavirus crisis, you know, where it's a pandemic and, and, and you're in the travel industry. So, and then in those cases, I, I, I don't tend to doubt myself. You know, I feel, I feel that I'm doing the right things, especially when I see that the things I'm doing uh, work. But for example, the, the last couple of years at Cytel, I, yeah, I doubt myself and I doubt so much uh, myself that I, I resigned basically that I, I told the board uh, that, listen, um, I don't think, uh, basically what you said, I, I don't think I'm, I think I'm burned out. I don't uh, have more ideas. I think we need, um, I think it would be good for the company and for myself to find somebody else who can take over and come with fresh ideas um, to to basically solve solve the issues that, that we have as a company, you know? So, so uh, that has happened to me, uh, but not not in, this, not in this particular crisis. I think the cycle crisis, I felt uh, a sense of personal responsibility. I felt that, I had failed, you know, and I had made some big mistakes that had led the company to the situation it was. And therefore, I doubted uh, about the, when, when I had to make a decision that, for example, uh, required um, sacrifices for, for third people, I felt, I felt more responsible than, than in this particular crisis. You know? When I had to terminate somebody in Cytel, you know, it was because I had created the problem. When I had to terminate somebody at Exotica, it has been because there's been a pandemic and that's the right thing to do, you know. How do you avoid taking the problems home, right? How do you, do you, are you able to separate, you know, work from life? Are you mixing? Do you take work home and do you take the problems home? Or are you those people who have got everything so decoupled that they, when they return, it's like, okay, just no, tomorrow. I, honestly, um, and I think this is going to happen more with everybody, eh? The, the line separating work and personal life is, is getting blurry, you know, uh, especially now yeah. that we're working remote. And Correct. So I've, I've always been like that. Eh? I've always been super intense in my in my job. Uh, and I, 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 I don't disconnect. And I, I used to take very, now I'm taking a little bit more vacation, but I used to take very little vacation because I felt that if I, if I felt that if I was not on top of things, um, I feel anxious, you know, uh, and I'm always, mm -hmm. I've always been connected, you know, um, <laughs> day and night, uh, especially with, for example, at Cytel, we had operations in, in the US, in Australia, in many different continents, in different time zones. Uh, so for me, it has been hard to separate uh, the, the work line and the personal line. And uh, I'm not saying this because I'm proud. I think it's a, it's a mistake, you know, but sometimes you can, you can, you cannot separate it. And, and for me, and it, it affects me a lot also in my, in my mood and in my emotional state, how things are going at work. So if things are going great, you know, I'm, I'm more happy than, than if things are, are not going well, you know, uh, it, it, it affects me, uh, in, in a, in a, in a big way. There are people that can completely separate the, their, their two lives. I, I can't. You uh, let's, circling back to something you said at the very beginning is that we will be going into pandemics. Uh, sorry, pandemics crisis more often, and it reminded me of Omodeus. I don't know if you if you read the book, um, 
by what was the name is uh, Yuval Noah Harari something like that and and the thing is uh, he also mentioned that in the book it's like we will be going into um, crisis more often so therefore maybe the new leaders have got to have some skills that previously they didn't need because you know global crisis they were only every 20 years so to speak whereas now maybe we're going into global crisis every five years or every two years I don't know right what kind of skills have you built and you think they are necessary to face this new situation, this new reality? I think the biggest one, and for me, it's it's the most important one that you need to have uh, to be in a startup is, is resilience. I mean, uh, at the end, uh, when you are in a startup, not only in crisis mode, uh, in, in normal mm -hmm. mode, you're going to face a lot of rejection, you're going to hear a lot of no's from new employees, new customers, new partners, new investors. So having the capability of processing that negative inputs as, as feedback and, and being able to overcome uh, the negativity and, and come up with, with positive ideas and, 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 try, and try again, you know? And uh, I think that's, that's absolutely critical, you know, uh, in, in crisis mode, but also in a startup, because startups are like roller coasters, you know, there are a lot of ups and downs and you're always going to face adversity, yeah. you know, no matter what. I mean, there's no, no, no single successful startup that doesn't go through, through, through several uh, crisis or problems or issues or or, or, or or key moments where the decisions were were, were absolutely very important you know uh, and in order to be able to to, to go through that uh, from an emotional point of view you need to be strong uh, and you need to have resilience to me that's the number one characteristic that uh, the CEO or the leader of any uh, startup needs to have and I think this characteristic as you said is even more important uh, now that we're going to face uh, probably crisis more more often you know um, I wanted to touch on something else before we wrap it up, which is investors, right? Because we have briefly covered it, but there's one underlying truth here that, you know, VCs, they tend to be very supportive until things go south, right? And we know that just by, by their structure, because the way they are engineered, they need to, as time goes by, they see the companies that perform the best and those that perform the worst. And their model can only allow them to, to help those performing the best. Because if you're not performing enough, they kind of like let you die, right? So do you think you've been helped in your company in Exotica just because you were performing well before the crisis or you would have been left to die had it been the situation a little bit different? No, I mean, what you're saying, it's absolutely right. Eh? But it's not it's not the same for, for all VCs because, uh, I mean, there are VCs that are, have- Not huge... yours, right? Not yours. No, <laughs> no. They are good but... people. <laughs> it, it depends. It depends on the size of the VC. I mean, there are there are VCs that are that have like five hundred, and, and I had eh, some of those VCs uh, in the past. Yeah, that are that, I don't know have five hundred million euros per fund, you know, uh, and therefore uh, the the first ticket is maybe three five million, you know, and and then uh, as you said, you know, if if they see that the company is not performing, they they stop supporting the company, and that almost kills the company because if the lead VC that is in the company is not supporting the company in the next round, it's it sends a very bad signal to the market, you know. Correct. Um, but uh, if you go, and that's why you, as a as a founder, you need to be very conscious about who you who you take on board. If you go with VCs that have smaller funds, you know, have 50, 70 million euro funds or even 100 million funds, uh, they don't drop companies so easily. Eh? Uh, I think actually the, sometimes the mistake that they tend to make is that they try to um, keep alive companies that don't really have uh, any possibility or any chance, you know, uh, just because they don't want to take the right off, you know. Um, so it depends, I think, on the on the size of the VCs. Again, there are VCs that uh, 
that don't that fight a lot before they they write off a company and maybe they fight too much because maybe there are companies that listen it just doesn't work and it doesn't make more sense to put in more money um, and and I'm very conscious about this and for example the the, the investors that I have brought to Exotica uh, which I was able to select you know because Exotica it has been a very attractive company uh, before the crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, have, are investors that fall in this second category, you know, that don't have a super big fans, that um, they have a reputation for uh, trying to support all the companies in which they invest, and only at the very end when they see that there is no no no, no any possible pot- potential positive possible po- positive outcome for the companies when they when they stop investing. And I have seen that in a situation where it was not clear you know where there was no vaccine there was super uncertainty they've put more money in the company you know uh and and, and they did it under conditions that are not distressed conditions they put the money under the same conditions that they had put it into 2019 when we were growing over 100 percent per year so i think i think again you have to be careful who you choose sometimes if you go through with a super big name firm um uh, a big international vc that has 500 or 600 million in that particular fund uh, it can be a very good thing if things go really well, but if things uh, don't go as expected, uh, they drop you, you know, uh, as you said. And, and, and if they drop you, it's very difficult that anybody else is going to pick you up, you know. Uh, and if you go with a VC that maybe doesn't have such a big name, it's a smaller, but uh, it's a VC that it's, it's a little bit more conservative. They don't, they don't look only for home runs. They, they look to make a, a decent multiple on every investment that they make, and, and sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. Those are, they tend to be more sticky, you know, and, and they tend to support you more in, in, in bad times. That's good to know. And, and people doing the reference checks in, you know, future uh, PCs, I think they would be, uh, they would do, be doing good if they listen to this interview on this part, particularly because it's very useful, right? Because everybody, you know, you can have fair weather friends in VCs, but like if they're not supportive when there's a crisis coming, maybe you don't want to take their money, right? So you need to be very, very, very selective as to whose money you take to, into the company, right? Startups, when they are doing well and they can raise money from top VCs that are huge, yeah, and they never think that things cannot go well. You know, it's, it's difficult for them and, and, I, and I've been in that position. Eh? That's a good point. It's difficult for them to think, if this has been going so well, why would they go wrong, you know? Uh, and even if somebody... Uh, tells them, listen, you have to be careful because things might not go as well as expected, and then mis- maybe this VC is not the VC you need. They get almost offended, you know, because it's almost like you're questioning uh, the company, you know. Um, so yeah. it is it is not obvious to see uh, beforehand, especially when you have a super successful startup and you have a lot of great VCs and great names uh, knocking on your door and willing to invest, you know, uh, telling them no to this type of VC and going with a much smaller VC that it's a little bit more conservative and maybe it's going to be more supportive in hard times. It's a, it's a very tough decision. It's a, it's a decision probably that I would say very, very few first-time entrepreneurs uh, would make. You know, It's only people that have gone through bad experiences and, and have gone through difficult times that know that this is something that you need to consider. How about the next years? What can we expect from, from Exotica and the market? Because it seems like in a crisis, markets tend to consolidate. We're seeing a lot of m people or companies buying other companies at a bargain just because some of them they were about to close shop or they were just not performing well uh we've seen even like travel perk has acquired two or three companies right in the, in the span of the last six to eight months which has been pretty surprising so some companies are going aggressive if they think they can they can still make it um so what can we expect from from the market what's your vision for the next couple of years 
100% bullish uh, on the travel market and the travel space. I think there's going to be a, a huge rebound uh, as soon as uh, enough people are vaccinated. We're going to see a big rebound. There's a lot of pent-up demand. A lot of people that um, have not been able to travel in the last year. Uh, if you look at uh, macroeconomic data, you will see that, that the percentage of savings has gone up uh, a lot, you know, because for two reasons, because people have not had the opportunity to spend. And secondly, because there's been there is so much uncertainty. So a lot of these uh, savings at some point are going to be spent, you know. Uh, so on the demand side, I think we're going to face... Uh, basically a wave of uh, people that are going to want to travel. Um, again, uh, and it's not going to happen, it's not going to take too long. Eh? As soon as there's a certain percentage of people vaccinated and there is a very clear time horizon on when they're going to be able to travel, I think we're going to see that. And then on the supply side of the business, uh, I mean, this business has killed many, many companies, you know. I think between, there's, there are different estimates, about between 30 and 50% of the, traditional travel agencies in Spain are not going to reopen, basically. So the, the, the supply side of the business has shrunk significantly, and therefore those that have done their homework and have made it because they had uh, the funding are going to be able to capture this demand. So I think uh, I'm, I'm super bullish. And we have already seen a big change in the behavior of the customers uh, starting uh, in November once the Pfizer announced the, 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 the vaccine, you know, so... People, people are waiting on the sidelines uh, and they are ready to to jump. Uh, they just need to get a little bit more confidence on the on the on the on the, the the pace at which we are vaccinating the people. Perfect. I think we can wrap it up here. One last minute for you to tell us what's going on in your life, uh, Exotica. How can we can help you and what's what's in store for the future? No, um, I mean um, I'm super excited. You know, I mean I've always been in the in the B2B side of the business. Now uh, I'm in a B2C company like Exotica. Uh, selling a super exciting product, travel. I mean, at the end, when you're selling travel, you're selling experiences, you know, to people. Uh, and you're basically making people happy, which is something that is always super, super rewarding. And and then I'm enjoying also uh, the, the, my other hat that I wear, you know, which is as an investor. You know, I, I love investing in in startups as as yourself. Yeah. Uh, I, I I I like uh, helping other businesses. Uh, at the end. Uh, I've, I've gone through a lot of experiences, uh, so uh, helping somebody who is a first-time entrepreneur uh, basically build something uh, and having some skin in the game because um, participating as an investor, you know, in that company is something that I, I truly enjoy. Um, and no, and I think uh, we're finally, I'm finally seeing the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, as I said, I'm super bullish on the sector uh, and on Exotica in particular. I'm looking forward to, to this 2021 after a very tough 2020. All right, we can wrap it up here. Thank you very much, Pedro. So thank you, Alex. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?